0: So you ever find yourself in a conversation and you wonder, how can I get out of this? We all have those people in our lives, I think, who point us to that. One of my favorite uh, points of reference there actually happened in church, and uh, it was in a different church. I was pastor of that church, which means um, it was a little more difficult, the fact that what happened involved my son. And uh, my son liked to, well, he was one of the sound guys, and in that particular church, the sound pit kind of extended into the uh, back of the auditorium. So he actually sat forward of a lot of people. And during the sermon part, uh, I'm sure my son felt like he had heard it all before, so he was looking around, and he noticed one of the men of our church who happened to be a deacon. And here's the picture that my son took of him during church, okay? Don't take pictures during church, just for... But here's the picture of this deacon in church. (laughs) And for those of you listening by radio, we don't have anybody listening by radio, but um, this guy was asleep with his mouth open and had been that way for a while by the time my son saw him and snapped his picture. So I guess sleeping is one way to get out of one of those conversations, but uh, we all tend to get into those situations with certain people in our lives, and they talk and talk and talk and talk, and sooner or later, what you hear from them is, wah, 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 right? And just so you know, any given Sunday morning when I'm sitting up here or standing up here preaching, I see your response, Okay? And so for some of you, no, not for some of you, um, if I see you kind of start zoning out, then I know that it's either time to yell or time to pray and go home. I got the greatest, greatest job in the world, just so you know. (laughs) That was awesome. All right, so here's where I'm going with all of that. We find ourselves in a section of our series here on the book of James, where if we're honest, it may very well be that we're saying to James, wow, really, man, just kind of get off of that topic. I'm finding this to be true in my own study of James as we go through this, and it's not the first time I've gone through it in my own personal life or preaching, but... um, Boy, I find him being kind of relentless. And he finds things and he finds areas of the Christian life that cause me to get a little bit uncomfortable as he deals with them. And maybe that's just me. Maybe it's because I find myself in the point of correction that he's drawing to more than I should. But sometimes I think of him, okay, James, just kind of keep moving, if you will, uh, because I'm in danger of going, this, is, this hurts too much, I'm going to check out. So in James, we've been working our way through this. We now start our third month in this. And we're a little over halfway through the, ser- uh, the series now, but we're a long way from being finished with what James is teaching us about living the Christian life. So in chapter 3... And we're actually today going to be in verse 17. Not only today, but today and next week. We're just going to camp out in verse 17. And I start today with that whole perspective of, you know, uh, wow, sometimes I just, ouch. Uh, Because verse 17 is one of those watershed kind of verses in the Christian life. So let me back up and read from verse 13 on to kind of help set the context for what we're going to do. But just be aware. That for today and next week, we're going to handle verse 17 and all of the eight different characteristics that mark a person whose faith works in the way they live their life. James will call that living with wisdom that is from above, but he contrasts that kind of wisdom with earthly, and in fact, he calls it demonic kind of living. Wisdom especially. Verse 13, he says this. Chapter 3, James' epistle. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, your faith has to work in the way you live, in your behavior. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now here's our text for the day. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And what James is saying to us and what I want to say to us is be a wise guy. Let the way you live your life so flow out from wisdom from above, as he says it, that people around you will recognize that you are far different from those people who live life according to that selfish. Agenda that is so common in our world. We look at these first four today, these characteristics that he gives us in verse 17, and what we find is James kind of spelling out this wisdom that is from above. He personifies, if you will, what wisdom looks like as it's being lived out. And so let's just kind of walk our way through this in the time that we have today. So here's the first one. This wisdom from above, verse 17, is first pure. Years ago, when the computer industry was still relatively young, there was this uh, saying, this single word if you will that came out called WYSIWYG and those of you who are computer guys or computer people understand that that's actually each uh, letter from each word the beginning letter is put together WYSIWYG means what you see is what you get and it has to do with the programming and all that what you see on the screen when you go to print it out that's exactly what it looks like uh, we take that for granted in computer ease now. We sit down in Microsoft Word or whatever word processing program that you use and you just take for granted that if you change the font, then it's going to look that way on paper. WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. That's this word that he starts with. The person whose faith works, in other words, the wise guy, uh, is the one who is what you see is what you get with him. Do you know people or... Have you been exposed to people who seem to be intent on working you to get what they want from you? Maybe the picture that I want you to see here is best gathered from what we've seen on maybe, unless you happen to be one of these people who have cow dogs or sheep dogs, but uh, you've seen those videos where these dogs are trained to run a herd of cattle or to herd a bunch of sheep. And and so they work them through the field and this single dog runs from side to side. And when one of those livestock gets out of the herd and wants to do its own thing, the dog runs over there and pushes him back into the herd. You know what I'm talking about with that? Hello? Um, Do you uh, ever know people who want to do that to you? And you know the moment they open their mouth that they're about to say something to you that is really not about you at all. It is all about trying to get you to do what they want you to do or to get you into their agenda. That's the opposite of this word. And that's where I want to start because sometimes it's easier for us to see the other side before we come back and go, "Oh, so that's what we're supposed to look like," as James lays it out for us. And, and okay, so let's try it this way. Some of us have been, have been exposed to that day where you get a phone call or you get a, a piece of mail or maybe it's an email that says, "You have won a free cruise. All you have to do is come to see us and sit through our presentation." of buying something that you never would buy unless you had to come here to get a free cruise for it. It's the same deal. It's that manipulative kind of approach that so many people have. It's it's about us and getting us to do their work and getting us into their kingdom. So now I want to go back and review what we talked about just a little bit last week. Well, we talked about it a lot last week. I'll make it quick today. And that is that so many people in life, and it certainly is true in church, they are out to get their kingdom built. It's their special interest group. It's what they want. And they don't care about anybody else in their group because I've got mine, and this is mine, and, this is, and it becomes a kingdom for them. That's a small K. There are many of those in life, many of those in churches even, unhealthy churches at least. But James is writing not about fulfilling your kingdom's agenda. He's about us building the kingdom of God. And now we talk with a capital K. This person, the opposite of what James is talking about, that person is the one who's always working to get their kingdom a leg up, even if it damages the kingdom of God. And so James says, if you're a wise guy, and your faith works in your behavior, then you will be pure. It's pure in motive, and it's pure ethically, morally. It's pure in the behavior that you show to other people. This kind of comes, if you want to go back to the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, And the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is what we call the Beatitudes, and it's the first 10 or 12 verses of of Matthew chapter 5. And in that, we have this series, eight different statements that Jesus says that highlights the person who gets the Christian life right, uh, and it's stated as a condition, and there's a promise attached to each one of them. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, we have this condition of blessed are the pure in heart, and the promise that goes with that is, for they shall see God. The person who gets this right is the person who is understanding they have enough faith in God to run his own kingdom that they don't have to worry about controlling conditions and controlling conversations and controlling perceptions of other people. They can rest in the fact that God's in charge. That's the first one, the pure. I should also point out that because that one's first and the way James says it here, the first of these is pure. That's, uh, that's kind of an umbrella statement, really. What we're going to find here is all the other ones that fall underneath this come back to this particular characteristic or character trait The person who is pure will find these other ones coming into place, but if you're going to work on what's coming later, you're going to have to work on being pure. That's how it works here, so let's jump to the second one. Uh, The second one, the NIV has a different way of saying it. The ESV, as I'm reading from, says this, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. NIV NIV says that that person is peace-loving. So let me get right down into the bottom shelf of where you live your life. Do you know people who live for drama? Matter of fact, if you know somebody who is just always about the drama, won't you stand up and tell us, no, don't do that. (laughs) I rather suspect that there's not a person in this room who doesn't know of somebody who lives for drama in life. I like to pick on my daughter, Um, and uh, that's, like I said in the first service, the reason I pick on her and use her for this is because she is a great resource for sermon illustrations, Lauren is. But this is a positive sense that I'm using this. Um, When Lauren was in elementary school, and I don't know where drama starts. You know, I got... (laughs) At birth... That makes sense, actually, but by the time Lauren got to be in elementary school, she started bringing home all of the little girl drama that was going on at school. And, uh, I, you know, I love my wife for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that I really <laughs> loved her in those days was she took care of the drama at school problem with Lauren. Because I mean, whatever else you would think about my wife, she's not going to do drama, all right? So if you got some kind of dramatic thing that, you know, oh my goodness, somebody's not treating me right and I got my feelings hurt and Teresa's going to tell you, you suck it up, right? So I just saved you a trip or a phone call or whatever. So Lauren comes home from school and all these little girls, she had a friend named, uh, this is honest truth. She had a friend whose nickname was Chippy Chippy. Now, in my opinion, Chippy needs to be smacked just because of the name, all right? But that's not—that's not the Holy Spirit talking through me. I'm pretty sure. But Lauren came home one day, and here was her comment. She's crying. Her world was devastated because Chippy said, "I'm not going to be your friend anymore." And I'm not going to tell you exactly what Teresa said to her, but it was something along the lines of, are you kidding me? Chippy doesn't get to decide who your friends are. You see, here's the deal about people who love drama. It is always about them. Now in the verses before this James would call that demonic. Not my words, that's his. And the wisdom that is from above is not about you. It's not you being the center of every discussion. That's drama. You know people who love crisis? I had a I had a pastor, and we were going through some some crisis in that particular church. Uh, But as it turns out, it was not really crisis, crisis, it was drama, crisis. It was a couple of people who decided that things were way too calm around there, so they just decided they'd be upset about something. And this pastor, one of the wisest things I ever heard him say was, some people love crisis so much that they will create crisis if it's not there just because they love the energy of it. Now you're getting, so, you're getting ready to go into a weekend with your family for Thanksgiving. Remember what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> because somebody in your family is going to be dramatic and somebody in your family is going to have a crisis. Oh, my goodness, somebody burned the carrots. All right, this is not a crisis. Unless your house is on fire because they burned the carrots, it's not a crisis. I could give you one example after another just in family life. and I'm talking about our extended family because, you know, my nuclear family, we're perfect. We don't ever have any problems. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, I, could, I don't need to give you the examples because I, I talk about drama, and you go to pictures in your mind of people that do this. And I talk about crisis thrivers, and you go to people immediately in your mind who do that. Those people are opposite of this term. James says that the wisdom from above, in other words, the wise guy, is marked by being peaceable, peace-loving. It's, it's more than just being peaceful because I mean, you can go sit on a mountainside somewhere and cross your legs like you know some crazy person and do like this and find peace just because there's nobody else there. But this is not being peaceful. This is being peaceable. This is being peace-loving. Even, I'll take it now, we're back to the Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are the, what does he say? The peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. This is a God characteristic now. So when you find those people who push for the drama, And thrive on the crisis. Don't be like that. The term has the picture of being a bridge builder because the unfortunate reality is there are people in every church who want to create drama. There are people in every church who thrive on crisis. So don't be offended, but the reality is if that's you, James says that's demonic. Maybe in our churches we would be a lot better off if we would treat that kind of behavior as demonic rather than enabling it by pouring gasoline on the crisis thrivers. You see what I mean about wanting him to stop talking about this and getting on to you know, petunias in heaven and dogs, do dogs go to heaven? Important questions like that. Be a bridge builder. You know people like that? Do you know people who are the peace lovers? I've been fortunate as a pastor to have these people that James is talking about here. I've been fortunate to have them in every church I've been. Those people that I know, if they're involved in a situation, they're trying to bring peace into that. Those are the people who get it, those are the wise guys. Now, I want to say this. I want you to make sure that I that you get this. I'm not saying that we should just have peace at any cost. I believe in our day and age, there is this rising uh, voice among the newer generation that seems to want to say, "Well, just let it go. There's no sense for for a uh, a confrontation here. We just." Kind of let it go, let's all just get along. You know what I call that? I call that crazy. There's no denomination on the planet that is more crisis comfortable than Baptist. Uh, When I was in in seminary, they, they make us take Baptist history. That's a good thing. Because I was in a Baptist history class. I knew what I believed by that time. I'd grown up Baptist, so I was kind of comfortable with Uh, Familiar with all the Baptist doctors. What I didn't know was Baptist history. You know what? Baptists love to fight. Love to fight. And we're good at it. We kill each other like nobody's business, Baptists do. And in this Baptist history class, we were talking about one of the great controversies of Baptist life of years gone. And we were talking about whether, you know, there are times... My professor said it this way. There are times... In life, that you draw a line in the sand, and you take a stand, and you fight, and you die if you have to. To which all the guys, all the preacher boys, are going, "Oh, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah fight and die, fight and die, fight and die." But then he finished by saying, "Just don't draw the line in stupid places." You know, this person that James is describing here understands that there are times that you fight. Let me tell you something. There, there are things that I'll fight over as your pastor. I promise you. Uh, but it's not going to be over color of carpet. And it ain't going to be over what time we got through or whatever. James is pointing out for us, by this time we should be recognized. We're only two into a group of eight. But James is showing us here, we don't get here alone. Okay. This is Holy Spirit-created characteristics in our life. Remember where I ended last week about crawling up in God's lap and laying your head over in his lap, on, on his chest and hearing his heartbeat and you get the line of sight that God has, all of that stuff. When you draw close to God, you begin to see the world through God's eyes. And he begins to make you over in his image. And part of that is going to be you will be a peace Loving, making person. Let's go to three because it's awfully quiet in here. So, the third characteristic, according to James, of a wise guy is that they are gentle. This one I think is a little harder for us to pick up sometime. Have you ever heard somebody try to cover their attack on somebody else with these words? Well, it's true. Sometimes, I'm afraid that as Christian people, we, we can be so sold on the truth that we begin to lose sight of the person with whom we're dealing. If, if you happen to be one of those who carries the truth like it's a club and you beat people over the head with it, you're a dirty, rotten sinner and you know it. You, you need Jesus. You need to straighten up. Um, here's a good truth for you. If, if you want to beat people up with the truth, let me beat you up with the truth. Truth spoken without love is probably an attack. And I don't think that does any good for the body of Christ. And according to James, the wise guy is the one who recognizes that if you have to go to war, if the peace loving, peacemaking part begins to suffer, and you have to go and you have to deal with somebody else who needs the truth, then use a velvet brick. You know what I mean by velvet brick? It's it's still a brick. I mean, the truth hurts. If, if I have a sin in my life and you feel like God's told you to come talk to me about it, well, first of all, beware because most people uh, who need you to come talk to them about that, they may not be hearing from God like you are. So you come say, God told me to tell you you're a dirty, rotten sinner. Well, God told me to tell you you better run for your life, buddy. You see what I mean? You... You've got to be careful with this. But this word, gentle, has the idea of being considerate. It means that you care about the other person's welfare, and so when you come with truth, it is in such a way that they can receive it from you. I think the best example here is of Jesus himself. Imagine that. Remember the story of Jesus and the woman who was taken in adultery? If you don't remember that, you can go check it out in one of the Gospels. But the basis of the story is that this one group of religious leaders was trying to capture Jesus, trying to trap him. And so they kept bringing him these different attempts to get him to hang himself with people. And uh, so they find this woman who is caught in adultery, and apparently she really was. It's not allegedly. Apparently she really had been caught in adultery. And uh, so they bring her, and they say, "What, what, what do you say we do with her? Because the law says that we should stone her to death. Okay, so in other words, they've gone to her, and they've hit her over the head with the truth, you're guilty, you die except they're way too sophisticated for that. Most church people are way too sophisticated in these kind of things. And so they come to Jesus, and they see here an opportunity to kill a woman who's taken adultery and to hang Jesus at the same time. And Jesus uses a velvet brick on both groups. It's amazing. To the accusers, His velvet brick is. The gentle response with truth was, okay, she's guilty. You're right. So whichever one of you has no sin in your life, you throw the first rock. Now that's a hit right upside the head with truth. The truth is none of you are in that position, so none of you can be throwing rocks. Right? I'm, I'm intrigued by the way that little passage is stated because it says that the response to that was they slowly began to trickle away. Okay? So the most insightful people heard Jesus say that and went, whoop, I guess I'll just leave now. And some of the other ones standing around there, I'm sure, were those church people who were just, they were intent on getting what they wanted rather than dealing with the truth. But as the group around her got smaller and smaller, uh, they just finally dissipated away. Imagine, you put yourself in the woman's position while this is going on. Now, Jesus has a velvet brick for her, too. She did not get off the hook because Jesus turns to her. Remember, there's a question first. Where are your accusers? I think there's a lot of grace in that question. But the velvet brick says, you go and sin no more. Gentle with the truth. We could use a little more of that in church life in the 21st century. Just so you know the go and sin no more. That's how I like to close our staff meetings. Just to let our staff know that somebody's watching. Just kidding. So, let's go to the last one. Are you getting enough from Jesus, I mean, from James now? You ready for him to move on? (laughs) Uh, Here's the one that might be most uncomfortable for us. This one, according to my translation, says, is open to reason. The wise guy is open to reason. Why is it in our 21st century American culture that we always feel the need to win? You know, the Dallas Cowboys are playing today. Dallas Cowboys fans have learned not to feel the need to win. Amen. Romo's going to be playing today, so we're going to lose with our first string quarterback today. It's all good. We don't feel the need to win. Okay, Texans fans are becoming like that too, aren't we? So um, here's my deal with that. It seems like um, we have this driving need to be the last one standing in an argument. And so we fight. And when the other person doesn't immediately surrender, we fight louder. And we fight harder. And maybe we fight dirtier. But for some reason we feel the need to win. One of the translations, the NIV I think here, translates this as this person, the wise guy, is willing to yield. The picture is here of somebody who just doesn't have to have the last word. Our musicians are going to start coming up now because we're have just about finished. But as we kind of close this out, let me come back to this idea of having to have the last word. You want a quick way to ruin your marriage? Get in an argument and you always have to have the last word. I said in the earlier service, I'll say it in here, we've got a lot of young families in our church, families with young children. Let me tell you something. If you have a child who always has the last word, you better get a handle on that because that kid is going to grow up and become somebody's employee and that won't work on a job. And you reduce your children's future if you don't make them understand that they're not the smartest guy in the room all the time. Just because they have an opinion doesn't mean that everybody in the world needs to hear it. Nor does it mean that just because they have an opinion, they're right. I think the way James comes at this is really smart. He holds the standard up for us. And we've looked at four different statements here today that he says, these are characteristics of wise guys. The wisdom from above that uh, informs the way they live and their faith works and their behavior. This is what that person looks like. We don't have to look very far to find the person who doesn't model that. But under God, shouldn't we want to be the person that does? Let's pray together. And as we pray, let me just kind of lay out this part of the service for you. And the invitation that we have for you is, first of all, if, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, then... The best place for me to tell you to start is that you become part of his kingdom. Give up that fight to be in charge of every part of your life. You'll lose that, I promise you. One of the reasons life gets so hard and so complicated for us is because we try to go it alone and we try to make it on our own. Jesus Christ came and he died on a cross so that you can have life. And that life means to come into his kingdom. That's the life worth living. It's the only life worth living. That's the only thing that even qualifies as life. So if you've been fighting against life for a long time and you're tired of the fight, then I first of all invite you to know Jesus Christ, to surrender to him as Lord of your life. And in doing so, to come into the kingdom of God. Now at that point... We pick up what James is saying, okay? You don't, you don't need to go out there and clean yourself up so that you can come to know Christ. It, it's just the opposite. You come to him, he'll clean you up, okay? And part of that, this that we're talking about here, is the response to him being Lord in your life. And he'll systematically work those things away from you and chop here and grind there and sand a little bit there. But it starts with knowing him as your Savior. And if you know him as your Savior and these things hurt, then that's the Holy Spirit saying to you, here's some places in your life you need to get straight. So use this invitation time to get straight, whatever that means. If it's to come know Christ as your Savior, I invite you to do that. I'd love to talk to you about that. We're going to have some people standing at the back during this next song set. Uh, and just grab it. It's Aaron, Stephanie, I'll be back there. Uh, Teresa will be back there. You You need to talk. You need to pray with somebody about any of this. We want to do that with you. Now's the time to do it, okay? Let's sing together. Let's stand. And Father, as we come to this time, we pray that you'd move in the hearts of people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.